0: Meet Lori Leshin, the new director of JPL, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Lori Leshin took over as leader of the Jet Propulsion Lab in May. She invited me to her office on the vast campus of the NASA Center that is operated by her alma mater, Caltech. You'll hear our very enjoyable conversation in a few minutes. We've also got a great bonus to share. I'd invited our own Casey Dreyer to tell us about his insightful and inspiring essay marking the 25th anniversary of the film Contact. We had that conversation, but only after Casey helped me explore the announcement by Russia that it will withdraw from the International Space Station after 2024. All that, and a visit to Burger Heaven with Planetary Society Chief Scientist Bruce Betts in this week's What's Up? You've never seen Jupiter like this, not unless you've already caught the infrared images of our solar system's giant captured by the JWST. There it is in two different wavelengths at the top of the July 22 edition of the Downlake, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter. Below it is a real stunner. It's a full-globe photo of Mars taken by the United Arab Emirates Hope spacecraft in February. Kudos to Jason Major for processing it from the UAE's data. We learned that NASA has decided to delay the launch of the Viper rover to the moon. Viper, that's Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. And the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars is expected to rise through that thin air once again in August. Engineers and scientists expect dust storms to subside by then, allowing the tiny whirlybird to fully charge its batteries. Also at planetary.org slash downlink is an item about my upcoming retirement as host of this show and a link to where we are inviting applications. Casey Dreyer is the Planetary Society's Chief Advocate and Senior Space Policy Advisor. Casey, welcome back. You know, my intent was that we would merely talk about this piece that you have written for the Planetary Society website Uh, which I believe is one of the best and really most beautifully written pieces I've ever seen on our website. Uh, We will come back to that in moments, but it was only moments ago anyway that I learned about this news, which is bound to be big news about the ISS and Russia's involvement. You want to give us a quick recap?
1: Well, Borisov, the new head of Roscosmos met with Putin and stated that the Roscosmos of Russia will intend to uh, separate from the ISS partnership after 2024. This caused quite a bit of attention and, and obviously, I'd say honest confusion, particularly for people just following the news or watching space. And really, after looking at this closely, after parsing through the language, it's not that Different than what has been said before by the previous head of Roscosmos, Rogozin, who was just recently demoted. And I think the best way to interpret these types of headlines and these types of statements is to look beyond the words to actions. As of yet, right, and I'll emphasize yet, we have not seen any concrete actions by Russia that shows immediate or even near-term desire to depart uh, the ISS partnership
0: this was such an interesting story just the same it's not surprising it's getting the attention that it is so your conclusion uh hopefully it's it turns out to be the case is reassuring there are some other interesting little pieces to this story and and uh, a good part of my source uh, for this is the New York Times piece, which I do recommend by our friend Kenneth Chang and another reporter whose uh, name I forget, but he is uh, the New York Times uh, reporter from Russia. It's an excellent piece. They quote an analyst as saying that really, you know, as we hear about Russia becoming more involved with China, Russia really doesn't have that much to offer to China in the establishment and maintenance of their of their space station. Is, is that what you've learned as well?
1: yes that seems to be the case and not only do they not have much to offer it's not even clear if they can access china's space station based on the orbits that china placed its station into one of the entire purposes and and motivations behind the chinese space program right now recall is it's as like most space programs it's a symbolic statement of technological capability of organizational might of resource uh, capability and it makes sense that China, I mean, in its, once it was really closed off from U.S. cooperation, it benefits from its own independent space program, right? So it's not seeking partnerships beyond those that it can use as a kind of a symbolic uh, partnership, regional soft power demonstration, right? And that's what we're seeing. Uh, it move forward, just like the ISS is as a function of U.S. and Russian still uh, cooperative soft power. You can't just jump from one space station partnership to the other. There's a lot of complexity. And, and what I said to to another reporter earlier today, particularly with, with Russia's situation, is really limited in terms of the options they have in general, whether they want to do their own or partner with another station. The NACA module, which just launched last year, was over 20-year development process for Russia and still had major, major glitches that really threatened the station when it was attached, Hmm. right? You don't go down to the space station store and buy a module, (laughs) right? And swipe a credit card. Not yet. Not yet. It takes a lot of time, effort and money, none of which we've seen uh, Roscosmos begin to apply to this program. So again, that's why I look past this. And the other key word here, they say it's after 2024 that they intend to pull out. Well there's a lot of years that technically fall after 2024, right? That is a good statement too is that there may be some uncertainty in the ongoing partnership, they may wait until they have existing hardware flying separately, but again, nothing that we've seen yet indicate any immediate change in this relationship. And I also will emphasize US and Russia just 10 days ago signed a partnership to launch each other's astronauts. To the ISS. So what does the action say versus what the rhetoric says? I always say rhetoric is cheap, right? Rhetoric is free. People can spout words like I do frequently, you know, ad nauseum. Uh, It doesn't cost you anything. Actions, how you spend money and resources, that tells you something. That's policy in action. So we have not yet seen policy enacted from these statements.
0: So stay tuned. Back to the original topic we had in mind, some words you spewed on July 23rd <laughs> and and spewed nice rather, <laughs> rather well, rather well. It's your article uh, at Planetary.org, Faith, Doubt, and Contact. On its 25th anniversary, Contact remains as relevant and unique as ever. It is clear that this film has meant a lot to you for the last uh, quarter century.
1: It really has. I mean, it was surprising to me that it's been that long since it came out. I think it's a very underrated film and deserves a higher place in, you know, whatever we consider a film canon, not just as a sci-fi film, but as just a beautiful piece of, of cinema. It takes such a thoughtful, respectful, caring approach to just a fundamental aspects of human existence this word Mm. numinous that comes from Mm -hmm. from carl sagan's book that you just so rarely see in cinema to begin with and then mixed with this very unique situation it came out of which is robert zemeckis who directed it was fresh off of winning a ton of oscars and making a ton of money off of forrest gump and could basically do whatever he wanted and chose to do contact so he could pull the resources level of movie stardom In that film that really, again, just has not been replicated effectively since you could maybe argue Interstellar was about as close as we've come uh, since that, but just doesn't have that kind of thoughtful panache that contact does.
0: Just to recap, for anybody who has not seen it, well, first of all, watch it. Watch it as soon as Mm -hmm. you can. If you listen to this show, you are very likely to love this movie. Uh, It's the story that centers on one scientist, a, a SETI researcher, who is lucky enough to be part of a team that makes first contact. And it turns out that what is transmitted to us are instructions for making a vast machine. Uh, an extremely expensive and ambitious machine, and nobody knows what it will do once it's turned on. Then uh, a little trip that she gets to take because of that that machine. What's interesting to me is you open this piece by saying the most exciting moment in contact isn't Ellie's trip through space-time, nor the, att- well, I don't want to give too much away, for- but you say something far too rare in cinema, a moment of discovery. And then you connect this with the thrill, the PB&J, as Bill says, mm-hmm. the passion, beauty and joy of science, which you apparently think this captured pretty well.
1: It did. And that moment when the signal is first detected and how do they make the acquisition of knowledge thrilling, right? And that whole scene is just a masterclass in framing, editing, composition, but also just it captures that the promise of something new. I, the closest thing I could think of is when in a superhero movie, when a our protagonist discovers their powers for the first time, mm. but instead of an inward kind of ego-driven discovery, right, about what an individual can do, this is an outward, fundamentally world-changing discovery that re-characterizes uh, a global understanding of its role in the cosmos. Those moments of discovery can be rare, but even the promise of something new is so transformative and hits a deep-seated, almost spiritual aspect of human existence. And this is what that movie just does so well, right? And it's, a, it's, a, it's exactly right, that joyousness, the thrill, the opening of, of boundaries that we didn't even know were there. Suddenly falling down, it, Carl Sagan actually published a, a series of as a book, but it was based on a series of lectures called "The Varieties of Scientific Experience," which is a, a, a play on the varieties of religious experience by William James. And he, you know, he kind of touches on these same themes. and And that those series of lectures are very much in my head. Watching and reading, I also reread the the, the book "Contact," which are, a lot of people, myself included, really enjoy it. And there's Me too. deeper yeah. levels of it uh, than available in the movie, but that was a theme recurrent through my mind as I was revisiting Contact 25 years later. And I think that's the key to unlocking Sagan and Andrean who who we should credit here as co-writing the original screenplay and was a constant, not just muse, but co-writer and partner of, of Sagan throughout his years.
0: Absolutely. And uh, thank you, Anne, if you happen to hear this, Anne will be back with us. Not too long from now, in about a month, to uh, help celebrate the 45th anniversary of uh, the launch of uh, the Voyager mission. I would compare this movie in interesting ways to the much more recently released Don't Look Up, because there is that wonderful moment at the beginning of that movie when a grad student realizes that she has discovered a new comet no one has ever seen before. And everyone, all of her colleagues celebrate with her, and there's this wonderful elation. And then they plot the course of this comet, and they realize that we have a serious problem.
1: Let me say something about that, because that's an interesting comparison. Um, I, and I enjoyed Don't Look Up, but at its core, it's a cynical movie, right? Oh, yes. it's, it's a, <laughs> and what makes contact so rare as a film, and this is, again, I think the core of understanding it too, in terms of what I use as the term, faith permeates this film, not in terms of just motivation of nearly every individual and organization is faith in some way, secular or or divine. But there's also, and I think this quote you're going to have me read, this is the core of it too, is that it's an expression of Sagan's faith in humanity and our ability to rise up to meet a challenge, but also to say that there is maybe something out there that we're not alone. And that not only are we not alone, there is almost like a family waiting to embrace us with open arms into this adulthood of civilizations. And that is a beautiful idea. That is, again, the definition of faith, right? The the, the uh, presence of something un, unsupported by evidence, but a deep-seated conviction or understanding of something you want to be true.
0: Well said. Uh, don't look up. Cynical? My goodness, I'll have to reconsider <laughs> the movie. No, I, let's close with this this one paragraph. The whole piece is beautiful. We just won't take the time to read it. Go to planetary.org and and read it for yourself.
1: So this, uh, this fourth paragraph, do you have it in front of you? I, I do. Go for it. Contact, the book, is Sagan's personal act of devotion, a statement of his faith for the cosmos as of yet beyond our comprehension. His conviction is that seeking the numinous, the feeling of being in the presence of the divine, is the common thread of human experience, his grand unified theory uniting the sacred and the secular. Hearing a voice from the sky, whether a mathematical message or as revelation, Triggers the same emotional structures in our brains, and perhaps through this common experience, our species can find some sense of common purpose and elevated cause.
0: Well done, Casey. Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to talking again. Well, next week when you will welcome my recent guest, Lori Garver, to uh, continue uh, the discussion generated largely by her uh, her recent book, uh, Escaping Gravity. I'll
1: be there for that.
0: Casey Dreyer, that's the senior space policy advisor for the Planetary Society and our chief advocate. And uh, space policy edition, first Friday in uh, August is when you can expect to hear that conversation with Lori Garver. There isn't much I need to say to introduce Lori Leshan. We talk about the long road that led her to leadership of JPL in the great conversation you're about to hear. Lori was first heard here 19 long years ago. Back then, she was principal investigator for a proposed mission called Sample Collection for Investigation of Mars, or SCIM. We've got a link on this week's episode page at planetary.org radio, along with other great resources. SKIM was not chosen by NASA, but the agency seems to have recognized a great scientist and leader in Lori. By the way, she'll mention a mission called SWOT, that's S-W-O-T, for surface water and ocean topography, an Earth science spacecraft that is a collaboration between NASA and the French space agency CNES. Lori LeShan, thank you for welcoming us into your office. Welcome home.
2: Ah, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be back in Southern California. We are happy to
0: have you. Full disclosure, you are a former member of the Planetary Society Board of Directors. I think you were also on our advisory council. We're very proud to uh, have you back as a neighbor, as I said. Bill Nye sends his regards and uh, looks forward to saying hello.
2: Oh, please say hello back to him for me. I I miss him. I'm looking forward to seeing him.
0: Your longtime colleague, Jim (laughs) Green, was uh, my guest last week on the show talking about (laughs) a number of things. He sends his regards and high praise. He, He said he regrets... Uh, that he won't be able to work for you or with you again <laughs> in uh, one of those positions because he he worked for you at Goddard. He I did. didn't know that.
2: Yeah, he did. He worked for me at Goddard when I went there in 2005. He was running our data systems and just you know you you saw last week. I'm sure he's an extraordinary uh, communicator and, and and his enthusiasm for space science is really boundless to, boundless. And so it's great to see him having had so much success running planetary science and then being the chief scientist of NASA so proud of him
0: and he's staying busy as I noted in my introduction you are the first woman to lead the Jet Propulsion Laboratory you know I hope that when the second person takes that chair over there behind us that you know it won't even be necessary it won't even occur to people to point out that uh, that it's a woman in the job but but for now it's it's kind of a big deal.
2: Hmm. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge honor, of course. It took 86 years, so yes, it's, uh, it's time. And, and not only am I the first woman, but my, my colleague, uh, fabulous colleague up here, Leslie Livesay, who's one of our associate directors, was really the first woman in leadership in the senior leadership of JPL, and she's only hmm. been in her role a couple of years. So it really has, is time, and, and it's wonderful to get to uh, be a part of a change here
0: i mean i guess i should say you're not the first woman to lead a nasa center nope. but no but J- jpl does have a different kind of status can you remind us of how you how jpl differs from the other centers
2: sure so jpl is nasa's only federally funded research and development center, FFRDC as we lovingly call it, which means that that while we are in some ways very much like a NASA center, in other ways we're very much not, we are our property, our buildings and such are NASA owned, but our employees are employees of Caltech who operates JPL for NASA. And that gives us a little bit of extra special Ability to kind of have a little bit of independence, mm-hmm. but also really be honest brokers between NASA and the broader space community and do some things that a little bit differently, which is always good, I think, within the agency.
0: And in taking this job, didn't you also become a vice president down the block at uh, Caltech?
2: Yes, I am also a vice president of Caltech and also a professor at Caltech in my old department where I got my Ph.D. Wow. I'm a professor of geochemistry and planetary science now at Caltech, which is a thrill.
0: If I have it right, you're only the 10th director in that 80-something years here at JPL. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, You're following these legendary figures. Bruce Murray, Ed Stone. Do you ever think about that? I mean, uh, occupying this office?
2: All the time. Uh, also, <laughs> I, it turns out I happen to be living in Bruce Murray's old house at the moment. Oh, I know that house. <laughs> yes. That's a wonderful house. It's a home. wonderful house, yeah. yes. And uh, and uh, I spoke to Ed Stone right before I started. I'm a huge uh, longtime fan of his. Charles Alachi was one of my mentors. Yeah. and. And someone who I respect incredibly deeply, and Mike Watkins is a is a great person. And so, look, we I stand on the shoulders of giants here. I also <laughs> stand on the shoulders of the women who came before me at JPL. I'm right now reading, and I would recommend to all of your listeners if they haven't read Rise of the Rocket Girls, mm. um, which is really the history of JPL as told through the stories of the women who worked here. From the very beginning, like the hidden figures, we had women computers at JPL who were working right alongside the engineers building the first rockets here and, you know, blowing lots of things up in this beautiful (laughs) array back in the day. And, you know, I feel like I stand on their shoulders, too.
0: And I'll recommend a book. Uh, Lindy Elkins Tanton's yes. new book as well, Portrait yes. of uh, uh, the Young Portrait Scientist. Portrait of a Woman as the, no, the, the, of a... How the does way. it go? I'm trying to get it right, too. Portrait of the Scientist as a Young a scientist Woman.
2: Scientist as a Young Woman, that's it. Yes, yeah. I'm in the middle of that one, too. I'm the kind of person that has three books going at <laughs> once. So yeah. uh, Excellent. And that is a good one, and Lindy's wonderful.
0: Have you seen this? the great photo of you? It's 10 years old now. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, no, it looks great. Uh, you and others celebrating... Ah when Curiosity made it safely down to the surface of Mars.
2: That's one of my favorite pictures ever. That was taken about two minutes after we landed on Mars, which was 10 years ago, the night of August 5th here in California. August 5th is my birthday. Ah. And so it was on my birthday, and it was just the best possible experience to see we landed successfully, those first blurry grainy images came down. I call them the pictures only a mother could love because because they were actually taken through the lens cap of the camera, right? They they flew these transparent lens covers so that rightfully, because a lot of dust was kicked up, but they took a picture immediately. But sure enough, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I can't see anything. And and half the science team's like, oh no, there's Mount Sharp. But I was like, you're crazy. That is not. But sure enough, the next day when we opened the lens covers, there it was. And uh, and, you know, it was like 1030 at night when, when we landed her on Mars. And you would think, as I tell this story a lot, you, know, you would think it's like, okay, great, let's go out and celebrate. Well, no, you can't do that. You've got this, I say it's like having a new baby on Mars, right? You've, you've got to make sure it's okay, that, it, that it's healthy and that it, it can figure out its surroundings and that it's going to, you know, survive the first night and all of that. So we immediately ran across the street to the Science Ops Center and started working, And worked all night that night, and all night a lot of nights. So it was a a thrilling, thrilling time.
0: I love to talk about what we were doing that night at the Planetary Society down the street at the Pasadena Convention Center. You're right. So we were celebrating for you. I mean, really jumping up and down. It was such a... A wonderful, wonderful conclusion, which, yep. you know, to a mission that is continuing today.
2: Still going strong and still making amazing discoveries, you know, still sampling the rocks and soil of, of Mars and, and analyzing them and finding all kinds of fabulous new things. So Curiosity is going strong. And Perseverance is right right behind doing amazing work as well.
0: Forgot to put on my Perseverance and Ingenuity tie today, but yeah. it's a warm day anyway. <laughs> Aren't you still a co-investigator on, on two of the key Miniaturized laboratories or yeah. experiments on Curiosity.
2: I am. Uh, I'm a co-I on the uh, Alpha Particle X-Ray Spectrometer, which is on the end of the arm, which can give us sort of bulk chemistry of the rocks that we put our arm on, and then also on the SAM instrument, which is creatively stands for Sample Analysis at Mars. And that one is a one that's really close to my heart because one, the experiments I did for my PhD thesis in a basement lab at Caltech we're taking up pieces of meteorites and and heating them up and extracting water and other volatiles and analyzing them. And that's basically the same experiment that Sam does on Mars with rocks we've cored into or we drilled into or or soil we've scooped. And so it was taking that same experiment to Mars. And we built that instrument in-house at Goddard when I was at Goddard Mm. uh, in the mid-2000s. And it was great to be able to be a part of actually seeing that instrument come to life. You know, we took my whole giant lab at Caltech, basically, and miniaturized it down into something the size of a microwave oven. So, incredible. I
0: think of Sam mm. as a real miracle. Of, of the sort that was... Included on the Viking lander exactly. way right. ahead of its time. Very, exactly
2: right. Also, we had to invent all kinds of crazy stuff like little valves, little vacuum valves, and all kinds of, um, and it's still working 10 years later. And I can tell you from, again, having worked in the earth-based equivalent of these labs, you know, you're know, you constantly tinkering with stuff and making it work right. And, and the fact that this thing is still going strong 10 years later is, is truly something.
0: Absolutely. These that we've mentioned, these are just a handful of the, the engineering and And science miracles, people here at JPL and the other centers that you work with, that, that, you know, they create on a regular basis. I mean, I'm awestruck every time I come here. I wonder if if you have that same sense still once you're uh, at the top of the pyramid.
2: Absolutely. You know, you, you have to deal with a lot of challenges when you're in a job like this. And for me, the, the thing that keeps you going through those challenges is the inspiration that I get from the science that we're doing every single day, but also the people who are doing that science, who are so committed and dedicated. And, and, you know, I talk a lot about how, and I can tell later if you want a story about when we were installing a camera on the Hubble Space Telescope and how I, you know, how I saw people crying, right? Like uh-huh. it was... This, people think science is the passionless pursuit of knowledge, and it's nothing so of the wrong. sort. So yeah. wrong. It's the passionate pursuit of knowledge. And we do that every single day here, not just on Mars, but around most planets in the solar system, across the universe, through fabulous telescopes like James Webb, and also looking back at our own planet Earth to try and understand how it's changing and what the impact of that is on people's lives.
0: I'm thinking about those previous directors that you mentioned. Every one of them, a scientist or an engineer, Mm -hmm. basically scientists and engineers. Scientists and engineers. uh, Who, you know, I know some of them told me that they they wished they had time to do the kind of science they had done before they took on that this job. You've got to be facing the same kind yeah. of conflict. Do you ever, you know, wish you could just disappear from this upper floor and head down <laughs> into a lab?
2: Well, I've only been here two months, so I, I have—I don't have that wish yet. But so before I came here, I was president of a wonderful place called Worcester Polytechnic Institute (WPI) in in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is Robert Goddard's alma mater, by the way. Mm. So in the history of rocketry, it, it features prominently. They didn't have a geology department or a, people doing space science. They had aeronautical engineering, aerospace engineering, but but they really didn't have people who do what I do. Whereas here at JPL and at Caltech, I have tons of scientific colleagues. So it's actually probably, I hope, going to be easier for me to do a little bit of research while I'm here. I don't have hugely high expectations. But uh, again, with the faculty appointment at Caltech, I do hope to be sharing some students and postdocs with colleagues mm-hmm. and and pursuing some science and maybe. Maybe even jumping back into curiosity and maybe even perseverance. Who knows?
0: Good luck with that.
2: Thank you. What are your
0: priorities? I mean, every new director brings their own approach to the job. and. And that trickles down. I mean, what do you have in mind?
2: Yeah. Well, it's a big agenda right now, and and so and I'm still learning a lot. I will not claim to have uh, all the information I need to answer that question really, really definitively. And I want to take the time to really understand the place. I mean, I knew the place well before I've worked with JPL for decades. But... But being here and, and really embedding in the culture and the organization is something that takes a little time, and I want to take the time to do that. And I want to hear from lots of our team. We're going to engage almost everybody on the lab, as many as we can, hmm. in, in talking about our future. But but as I look at the landscape, I, you know, there's kind of four big things. So one is about our missions, making sure that we are delivering um, on those missions. And people are probably aware we had a recent challenge with Psyche, a mission to an asteroid. So we clearly have some work to do to make sure we're able to deliver. Some of that's COVID-related, recovering from that. But probably some. there's some other things too that we need to learn from and change. So we're really committed to that. And making sure missions like Europa Clipper and Mars Sample Return and the upcoming Earth Science missions like SWAT and uh, Mass Change and others that are coming are, are successful. And We have astrophysics missions too. We're building the next, the coronagraph on the Roman Space Telescope. So, those are all really, really important and and smaller missions as well. So, making sure the missions are working, that's great. Then, we need to be also looking beyond that and thinking about what is, uh, what does the future hold for JPL kind of beyond the current set of missions? And to do that, um, we need to be seeding technology for the future. Mm -hmm. We need to be understanding what capabilities we can barely glimpse right now that we need to develop. And so we are able to do a lot of that work here. And I want to make sure that we're really aligning our investments with, with where we think the science is going and make sure we're really driving the state of the art always. And then the the third one is about the broader sort of STEM and space ecosystems. So the space ecosystem specifically is really changing, it's changed a lot in the last decade, right? All these new entrants, all of this great launch capability that we didn't have 10 years ago, large and small, all of this, you know, new commercial activity. How does JPL continue to be essential in that ecosystem? How do we need to think differently about how we're partnering, who we're we're playing with and how, right? And so that's number three. And then number four is really around our colleagues and culture here, making sure that we are, that people see JPL as a great place to work, where that it's a place where everyone can thrive, where people from all backgrounds can do do well and succeed, and really making sure we're embracing um, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, all of those things, and just making it a fantastic place to make your career. So that was that's a short list, but you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's an impressive list.
2: We got a lot to do, and I'm excited to be diving into it.
0: My conversation with new JPL Director Lori Leshin continues in half a minute.
3: There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science.
0: There are probably people listening to us now who may not realize, I mean, you know, when they think of JPL, they see those huge successes lately. They yeah. they see the movie The Martian. And by the way, there are people working for you who wonder when that beautiful building is going to be uh, oh, constructed yeah, it's nice, on right? campus. Yeah. yeah, it's great. <laughs> um but they may not be aware that there have been challenging times for yeah, JPL, times absolutely. times when the the lab, there were even questions about its survival, mm-hmm. at least in the form uh, that it has now.
2: Yeah.
0: I, my assumption is, my, my perception is, the times are pretty good right now. But I guess that's also something that... Has to be in the back of your mind
2: always. I mean, we owe you know JPL provides a really essential capability for the nation, for NASA certainly, but for the nation. And and part of my job is to make sure that we continue to do that. Uh, But we have faced challenges. There have. I mean, look, one of my first deep interactions uh, with JPL was I was standing out in front of the building we're sitting in right now, live on CNN, when Mars Polar Lander crashed. Mm. It was not a fun day. And it was a, an incredible learning experience for me as a very young scientist to be in that position. And it's when I got my first real exposure to speaking to lots and lots of media and, uh, and also my first real introduction to NASA and how it worked and how it responded when things went wrong. We do the same thing today. When something goes wrong, we learn from it. We incorporate those lessons and we move forward. And, and so I've been involved in that curiosity Curiosity was incredible success, but what lots of people don't remember is Curiosity didn't make its original launch date. It had to slip a whole Mars launch cycle. It slipped over two years. Much better decision to hold off on launching and be really successful than to launch too soon and not. So again, back to the psyche decision that we just had to make. Same thing. We we weren't quite ready. We couldn't quite say with confidence that that mission success was assured, and so we we ha- we raised our hand and said, "We're not going to get there. We want to understand why. Let's learn from this. Let's let's um, address the issues, and let's get this science a little bit later. I hope, but hopefully, just science." Delayed, not science denied. (laughs) Absolutely, and
0: and good precedents for that. I mean, rising like a phoenix from the ashes, right? So speaking of Mars Polar Lander, yeah,
2: yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, you could say the same about JWST, right? All the challenges that the Webb telescope faced. You know, when you see those extraordinary, jaw dropping images. you kind of forget about that right yep. the important thing is that it worked and it worked perfectly and it's and it's going to be an extraordinary con- contributor to science for decades to come
0: you just barely touched on there about you know how things are changing in the space sector yeah. not just the 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 many new launch choices that uh, are available nowadays and and frequently much cheaper but also sending stuff places i mean how companies are getting farther and farther out there. NASA's commercial uh, lunar payload program, of course. Just this morning, we learned about a company that has plans in the next few years to put, put a lander on Mars, you know, as a commercial payload. Things are changing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's great. I mean, when I spent time at NASA more than a decade ago, my last job was at NASA headquarters working in the exploration program, which is the future human spaceflight program. And one of the big things we did was we started the commercial crew program, mm. right? We selected uh, SpaceX and Boeing to be able to provide these these co- commercial services to get astronauts to and from the ISS. And it took a while, and it was starts fits and starts, and it was painful. But now we're – SpaceX is doing it. Boeing is about to be doing it. And it's changing the landscape. And you know what that lets NASA do is focus on what's beyond. NASA shouldn't be doing the same things over and over and certainly shouldn't be doing the things that the commercial sector can do well. Again, we're a long way from saying they can do it well and reliably. I mean, Clips is a great idea. I strongly support it, has had zero landers actually go yet. So <laughs> right. we gotta get there, right? And and so sometimes those things almost certainly aren't going to go as planned, but you got to stay the course and keep in it for the long haul. And JPL's job is not only to help those companies succeed, but then to be always looking to the horizon at what comes next.
0: And I'll just note, Lori Garver was uh, on the show again a few weeks ago as well, talking but about her, her great new, new book. book. Yes, yeah. yeah. Esca- yeah. Escaping, Escaping Gravity.
2: Gravity. Yes, yeah. yep, Visionary Woman.
0: This is such a busy place and <laughs> a, a huge place. I'm looking out of your, your windows here. At just a, a piece of this uh, of this campus. The biggest projects always get the most attention. You've you've mentioned a few, but I wonder if you want to say something about, you know, some of the smaller, less splashy efforts, which there are so many of. Oh my uh, gosh.
2: Yeah. There's a lot going on. Well, first of all, there's a ton of just amazing research and science happening and and people developing new new capabilities. There's a whole team developing a life detection capability that Mm. you could send to a place like Europa or Enceladus. You know, they were just up in Mono Lake a couple of weeks ago, testing it to great success. I think I'm still waiting for all the data, but But there's always sort of that cutting edge of research that's taking place in developing new technology. We also are, we fly a variety of sizes of things from, you know, whole giant spacecraft to single instruments. We have an instrument, I think, literally within the next couple of days being taken out of the trunk of the uh, Dragon capsule and attached to the space station because it was just launched last week on the latest cargo resupply mission to the the space station. And it's a downward looking earth science instrument looking at mineral dust which has a very strong but not well-quantified contribution to either warming or cooling or both of the atmosphere. And so studying the the role of aerosols from mineral dust uh, is what that instrument's going to do. We've got small lunar missions getting ready to go, a couple of those, things that'll peer into the permanently shadowed regions from above and help us understand what's going on there small uh, astrophysics missions too. So we, we do things of all sizes here. And it's I think it's one of the exciting things, right? A, a young engineer can get some real sort of frontline hands-on experience on one of these small missions that maybe they wouldn't get on something big like Mars sample return, where they're going to be, you know, surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of others. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's great for us to have a, a strong balance of work here on the lab. And we have more work now than we've ever had. And, you know, it's a great you know, everyone say, oh my gosh, we're so busy, we're so busy. Well, this is a good problem to have, folks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but we've still got to make sure that we're giving everything the attention it needs, and so that's something we're really focusing on.
0: I got another one for you. Next week, I'm going to be talking to a, a couple of your researchers about their new Cloud Spotting on Mars citizen science project. Oh, cool. And, you know, it's a, I think it's like a two-week-old project. They've already got 2,000 people involved with it. That Allows me to go back to the importance of informing and involving the regular folks mm. out there who who pay for all of this. You bet. All of this work. I mean, how much of a priority is that?
2: Absolutely. So, uh, actually, I just did my first town hall meeting here at JPL. I had like four thousand JPLers between online and in person wow. uh, listening in. Yeah, it's been great. And I talked about sort of our north star and sort of. First priority is advancing science and and benefiting humanity with our missions and our uh, technology and our research. But the thing right after that was about inspiring everyone, right, engaging everyone in our quest, so that it, space just helps you think bigger. It helps you think beyond yourself, and it gives hope. I mean, mm-hmm. it, and I wasn't at JPL uh, when Perseverance landed. I wasn't the former director had not yet stepped down, so there w- wasn't even a twinkle in my eye at the moment. But Stepping outside and looking up at the sky after, in the middle of the pandemic when Perseverance landed. I mean, it inspired me, and I know it inspired people everywhere. It inspired the President of the United States. I mean, it's yeah. it's just a great thing to see how we can connect with the very best of people. And that's something I think we need right now.
0: Bill Nye, when he's not talking about the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of, <laughs> of space, he likes to say space brings out the best in
2: us. It does. I agree with him. Bill's always right.
0: Well, I work for him, so I have to say that. Um, Earth science. I got that press release last week as we speak about that instrument that's being installed on the ISS. We don't get to talk about it as much as some of us might like on this show because we tend to look away from this planet. But you do have a lot going on with earth science. And there are those elements of those missions that are going further out, right, which also contribute to... To Earth science, I mean, learning about what happened on Mars and what
2: happened on Venus. Right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we, and th- this is the fun part, right? We've been exploring Mars almost continuously for for twenty five years. We're about to celebrate the twenty fifth anniversary of Mars Pathfinder. It's hard mm-hmm. to believe, along yeah. with the tenth anniversary of Curiosity, and then upcoming sample return and lots of orbiters and other and other missions in between venus has been neglected uh sadly and and we're that's about to change because nasa is sending two missions and there's an international mission as well getting ready to go to venus and so we're we're getting back to venus and i think um the contrast between our two neighbors right is is shocking and exciting and really worthy of a lot more study and understanding and we're going to see venus in a whole new light over the next decade venus will will have a different place in our um, psyche than it does now. So uh, I'm excited about that. And and those things do help us understand our own planet, but there's no substitute for really applying the very best scientific tools we have to understanding the earth and, and to doing it over time scales that actually help us watch the changes happening so that we can sort of model and predict into the future and understand them at a, at a very fundamental level much better than we do. And we've got Lots happening on that front right now between EMIT launching, between SWAT, which is about to launch in around the end of November, beginning of December, uh, which is a surface water mission. We've got lots of, of exciting upcoming things. We've even got a mission actually for the first time ever. We are doing a mission that's that's entirely philanthropically funded. So no NASA money to look at methane plumes. Uh, so methane um, sort of pollution uh-huh. and carbon plume mapper, it's called. And, and so we're working on that and we're working on it with a, with private sector companies and others. So it, it's a really exciting new partnership taking advantage of all of the new interests that we have in space exploration and also in, in protecting our home planet.
0: We can't end this conversation without at least saying a few more words about... Those big splashy missions.
2: Absolutely.
0: Perseverance, just as we speak, picked up yet another sample from Jezero Crater. Uh, you mentioned just in passing that one that we're all very excited about that's headed out to Jupiter in a few years yep, Europa two Clipper. Years. Yep. Yeah.
2: There's so much to say. So first of all, Perseverance uh, did just take two more core samples of a location that's finally... So Perseverance has been full of wonderful scientific surprises, right? It landed in Jezero Crater near the the delta that it went to see, but not right on it. And so it turns out that as it started sampling, it was finding these igneous rocks, volcanic type rocks, which I love. I'm (laughs) sort of a fan of igneous rocks. And they have like water overprinting on them. So they're not sort of pure... But we weren't expecting that super exciting so we stashed those but the real goal for this whole thing is to get to this delta and start sampling this the sediment that we think should be there and we just did that for the first time so these latest cores you can look at the and all these pictures are online. Anybody can go on if you Google, you know, Perseverance raw images. You will get to the page where every single day the pictures that we see can be the pictures that you see. Um, you can find the ones that grind this rock and sort of give you a nice smooth surface to look at, and you can see clearly rounded grains. It's it's a sedimentary rock with really interesting cement, and that can be crumbly, so it can be hard to sample, but they yeah. found a good one, and they were able to do, so they stashed a couple of cores of that, and now they're moving on to even more interesting looking stuff. So, you know, with a little play to Star Wars, these are the rocks we're looking for, <laughs> and uh, and that's what we came for, and we're uh, excited to have some of those in our, you know, in our backpack to bring home now.
0: I suspect you were one of the Hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists who just cannot wait to get your hands on those samples.
2: I've, I've literally, it's one of the things that really drew me to come to JPL at this time. I've literally been working to advocate for and try to fly versions of Mars sample return for about 25 years. Mm. So the fact that we're finally here. But in the meantime, you did mention Europa Clipper, and I don't want to pass over that one because that's going to happen even sooner. So just a little more than two years from now, we'll launch um, our next mission to the outer solar system. It's a Jupiter orbiter, but it's one that's designed to do many, many, many close flybys of Europa, the, the fabulous moon of Jupiter, which we think has an ocean beneath its icy shell. And we are going to characterize and understand that ocean in incredible detail with this mission. And there will be a JWST like moment for that mission when we when we get to Jupiter and we really start to see close up what Europa has in store for us it's going to be thrilling and that spacecraft is coming together as we speak right here on the lab um it's in its um you know the last phase of when you do one of these missions you spend a ton of time thinking about what science you want to do and then you do a bunch of designing 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 and then you build all the pieces and the last bit of it is putting everything together testing it as an integrated system and that's where we are with with europa clipper now so it's really the home stretch in getting us back out to Jupiter. We're excited to do it. And it's going to launch on a Falcon Heavy in a couple of years. So that'll be a a good show and uh, can't wait.
0: I've seen a Falcon Heavy take off with our light sail among other payloads. and It's pretty thrilling. I
2: haven't seen one yet in person. You want to be there.
0: Yes. You definitely want to be there. I, I also think of how Europa Clipper in so many ways, is standing on the shoulders of giants itself. Yes. Cassini, Cassini, which told which us
2: Voyager and yeah. and and uh, Galileo, our uh, our other Jupiter orbiter mission, and now yeah. Juno we have out there too, which is a smaller mission but still fantastic. Yeah. I mean, Clipper is huge, if just for scale for folks listening. I mean. If you stood it on its side and uh, the solar panels, it's a solar-powered mission. If you can believe it, out of Jupiter, five times further from the sun. But the so, so as a result, the solar panels will go from the the toe to the crown of the uh, Statue of Liberty. We it's che- big. <laughs> it's big.
0: We check in with Scott Bolton every now and then. Oh, good. A, get an update oh, on Juno.
2: Juneau. Juno spectacular.
0: I, as we wrap up here, I just and switching gears somewhat, as we love to say in my business. Do you have a message for young people who might be listening to this, who dream of working at this place, at the Jet Propulsion Lab?
2: I do, which is come on down. We've got not only our public tours happening again, which is great, so you can come visit us. Uh, Lots of schools do. We have... 500 interns here this summer. So as, as a college student and, and occasionally even in, as high school students, you can have a possibility of coming to work here. And if you think you might want to, that's a great way to have access. I myself uh, got the bug when I, as a summer intern at NASA when I was 19 years old, not here at JPL, but in Houston. It's just a great thing to do and keep at it. There are lots of different ways you can participate in the space program, too. You don't necessarily have to be a scientist or an engineer. We have uh, lots of fabulous folks with all sorts of different backgrounds helping us explore the solar system and beyond. So please uh, study hard and and come join us.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking, after all, Jim Green was a diver at uh, Marshall Space Flight Center. <laughs> uh, have you ever been here, by the way, for open house, that that crazy event. I I don't know when those are going to start up again.
2: We we hope to have an open house in 2023 next year. Uh, So yeah, we're excited. Everyone is excited to get that started again. We love it. We love showing off what we do. We love inspiring people in person and and we look forward to being able to do that. But in the meantime, folks can take a tour online. You can go Mm. to our website and you can take a virtual tour of JPL. And there's really a lot there, a lot of great content if uh, anybody's out there looking for fun things to do with your kids.
0: We will put up a link to that offer of a tour on this week's episode page, planetary.org slash radio. Thank you, Lori. I, I mean, I hope to be back here again long before that uh, 2023 open house that I recommend very highly. Maybe when we celebrate the 45th anniversary of the Voyager missions launch, which hmm. is, as we speak, only about a month away.
2: That's true. It's uh, Can you believe that? It's so inspiring to think That uh, And that mission now, the light time is 18 hours from Earth. When we send a signal, it takes 18 hours to get to Voyager. Talk about a deep space adventure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Lori, and uh, enjoy your tenure here at the Jet Propulsion Lab.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Lori Leshin is the new director of the Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California. Time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. I'm with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That is Dr. Bruce Betts, who I forgot to tell Lori Leshen you were her, her classmate at Caltech. I apologize. Well, hopefully she remembers. <laughs> well, I don't know now, but maybe, Although you know. Although she's
3: reached, you know, the, such or such pinnacles of success, and I work with you. <laughs> Come on, you're the chief scientist. I'm the chief scientist. Now, Laurie and I were in the same class in Caltech in the Division of Geological and Planetary Sciences. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I, I really did. I sure, I'm sure I will. I, I like space, uh, <laughs> I like JPL, and
0: I like Laurie. So, you go. good. tell us about the night sky, damn it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I, I insulted you enough that you, you swore heavily at me. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Um, night sky. We have uh, four nicely visible planets uh, Venus, slow down on the horizon in the pre dawn, and you can go across the sky, but they're really spread out. So if you're looking in the pre dawn, you can look up above Venus and see reddish Mars, which is getting brighter as Mars and Earth come closer in their orbits. Farther up is uh, Jupiter, bright, and then farther across is yellow Saturn. But They're really spread out. So Saturn, you can, there's now a minor party going to a major party in the evening with these planets as well. Saturn's coming up in the early evening. Of course, things rise in the east because, you know, Earth rotation. (laughs) Um, And so you'll find Saturn in the east in the early evening and then Jupiter a little, a couple hours later and Mars a couple hours after that. So after the middle of the night. But we have a special guest appearance. Not visible unless you have good eyesight and a dark sight, but quite visible with binoculars, which is Uranus. And Uranus is always hanging out out there, but you can actually check it out kind of easily with Mars from July 30th to August 3rd. It's, it's relatively close to Mars. And so if you would get binoculars, hold them steady, find Mars, uh, you can check out the little blue dot that's Uranus. Or if you've got a telescope, that works too. So use a finder chart online if you need it. But uh, you can also just look for the blue dot. Let's go on to this week in space history. It was 1971 that uh, Apollo 15 landed on the moon. And uh, they did great science. And of course, they were the first to be humans driving around in a dune buggy on another world. Zoom, zoom. Zoom, zoom, zoom. You ready? Yeah. Yeah. RANDOM SPACE fact. Oh, I'm glad you warned me. You looked a little too sedate. So, have you heard of this place called J- JPL?
0: Uh,
3: it's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Oh, and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And A lot of people know this, and I'm sure you know this, but I thought it was time to share with the world why PrayTel is a place that focuses on space exploration named the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, it's because it evolved from a group under Caltech professor Theodore von Karman, famous for all sorts of stuff, who did rocket research, including developing, and this uh, I had forgotten, uh, developing jet assisted takeoff for aircraft. So you strap rockets to the side of aircraft and help them take off on a short runway. The name Jet Propulsion Laboratory first appeared in a proposal to the U.S. Army in, uh, I believe, 1943 during World War II, uh, proposing to do rocket stuff. The Army took over uh, their efforts and uh, the rest is history, sort of, once they joined NASA, right as NASA started as a uh, federally funded research center.
0: It really is a fascinating story, the origin of JPL. And, you know, we, uh, the closest Lori came was mentioning that uh, we're in this, uh, this, this gulch that uh, people used to blow things up in, which was absolutely true. So maybe something that uh, we'll save for another episode of the show, go even deeper into the history of that NASA center operated by Caltech.
3: We move on to the trivia contest. I have the ever insightful question for you. Generally speaking, what goal... Does the James Webb Space Telescope heat shield share with the packaging of the now retired, sadly, McDonald's McDLT burger? How'd we do, Matt? Could people deal with my craziness?
0: Oh, yeah, they did. And we had they had so much fun with this. And I'll get to our winner in just a moment. But I do want to mention, you know, our deadline for this contest was the day that I made my big announcement. And since then, Maybe we'll cover some of this in future shows, but thank you folks, everybody who has been writing and saying the most wonderful things uh, to me uh, about uh, my decision to back off from the host chair of this show uh, in November, not too late November, so we have till then, uh, but uh, thank you. I I do want to at least acknowledge those here and I am trying to reply to everybody who uh, says anything about this in a note. But anyway, before all that became common knowledge, We got this entry from Jonathan Gorbach, who I think might be a first-time entry, is definitely a first-time winner out of Virginia. Congratulations, Jonathan. Here is his response. A box and a shield made of tears, more alike than at first it appears. One side is kept hot, the other is not, and they'll both last for hundreds of years. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Please explain. yeah when they decided to retire the mcdlt i grabbed like 20 of them i still have 10 left <laughs> oh, God. bring one out every year they're sure. still good i mean the hot side's not hot anymore so the answer in a nutshell and lacking the clever poetry is uh the whole point of both uh was to keep the hot side hot and the cold side cold So McDLT, they put the burger on one side and the lettuce and tomato on the other side of packaging and sold it as, hey, keep the hot side hot and the cold side cold. And that's exactly slightly differently what the JWST heat shield does, having one side always facing the sun. And they keep the detectors on the telescope nice and cold on the far side.
0: So there you go. Jonathan won a copy of your book. Solar System Reference for Teens, uh, which is uh, available all over the place now. And it's a it's a really fine book. So, Jonathan, congratulations. Here are some of the other responses that we got from Kevin Caron, also in Virginia. Hi, Matt and Bruce. Thanks for the opportunity to answer a trivia question. My first that combines my love of learning about the cosmos with the incessant soundtrack of 80s commercials in my headspace oh well it was perfect because there's some <laughs> fabulous commercials for the mcdlt starring jason alexander uh, better known Indeed. as uh, Costanza from uh, seinfeld yeah uh cormac smith in florida i made so many of these during my early career <laughs> <laughs> oh a professional <laughs> oh gosh michael rowe in north carolina who's been listening since 2006 When I was doing consulting work in the early 90s to create a system to measure the amount of recycling done by a factory, I had the opportunity to see the styrofoam containers being made. Really cool to see the sheets of extruded plastic being molded, and guess what? All of those that you saw, Michael, are still in some landfill somewhere, I'm sure, and will be found uh, several thousand years hence by, uh, by archeologists. Yeah, I kept like a hundred of those and I've been
3: using them for special packaging. Got some plutonium in one of them. It's fine.
0: (laughs) Ian Jackson, didn't they stop selling it because some regular customers started to get stomachs measuring about 1.75 earth radii? (laughs) Maybe. Andrew Pant in uh, Pennsylvania, maybe McDonald's should have just cool the vegetables with liquid helium instead yeah. well that would that would be cold in response to that stephen porter in california i don't think bruce would have such fond memories of mcdlt's if the lettuce tomato were anywhere near the cold side temperature of the jwst Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah under 50 kelvins th- that is correct Burton Caldwell in New York. I bet the JWST team wishes it had been as easy as a styrofoam two-part container.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but they have a much greater sense of accomplishment now.
0: Finally, this from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. McDonald's created the McDLT and wanted to serve it in sections, so half would be hot and the other stay cold till the pieces made final connections. The James Webb was given a five-layered sheet, a heat shield for the machine. It's crafted of Kapton, a far better thing than McDonald's prepackaged styrene. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, and uh, uh, yeah, keep them coming, folks. We got a new one coming up right now.
3: JPL, we return one one last time to JPL. Name the locations, all the locations at JPL, to be clear, at the JPL main campus that are on the list of National Historic Landmarks.
0: Huh. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Apparently you didn't know either. I didn't. Who knew? Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing the answer to this one and we'll get those answers by... The 3rd, that would be August 3rd, Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And here's what somebody is going to win. It's a copy of a great new book uh, called The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars by Simon Morden a researcher planetary scientist who uh, is a great science communicator it is a, a beautifully written book uh well, here's a quote about it written with a poet's flourish this is your comprehensive guide to humanity's future home well i don't know if i want to live there but i'd like to visit anyway it's a, <laughs> it, it's a very fine book and uh it will go to uh, the winner of this one, this contest that Bruce has just challenged us with
3: all right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about... All I can think about is the
0: McDLT. Think about <laughs> McDLTs. Thank you. Good night. You still have one or two in the freezer? I'll be right over. You stay away from those. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members, many of whom work down the road at JPL. Learn how to help propel us at planetary.org join Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra.